to my little friend. Again, folks, this is your host, Glenn Peoples, and this is episode 49 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the Right Reason podcast. Episode 49, that just occurred to me earlier. That means the next episode is going to be episode 50. You may have heard people talk about dog years being different from human years. Well, in podcast years, 50 is kind of a, a milestone. Um, I mean, I, I have no idea if the podcast will even last another 50 episodes. That's kind of a big deal. So I'm going to have to plan something big for the next episode. But for now, you're going to have to settle for this rotten old <laughs> old episode. Remember that for the last couple of episodes, I've been retracing my steps through uh, a speaking tour that I did earlier this year. And this was the fourth talk in that speaking tour, but it's just the third episode uh, that I'm presenting from it because the third one uh, originally was the minimal facts approach to the resurrection, which I've already done here in the podcast. So this is the fourth one. And as I was looking through it, uh, I, I realized that it really is written for a live audience. So I'll be making comments that will really make more sense uh, if I was standing there uh, in the room with you giving this talk, uh, but I'm not. So just imagine that you're you know, at, at the event but so the first one was um, the fact that Christian faith is reasonable. Uh, by its very nature, there are good theological and biblical reasons for thinking that the Christian faith is reasonable, that it is not in opposition to reason at all. The whole faith-reason collision need never have occurred. Um, the second one was an example of the kind of reasons that you might give for belief in, in God generally. This was the moral argument for God's existence. The third one, which I didn't give uh, because I've given it before, narrowed in a bit more on the Christian faith in particular and looked at the, the historical reliability of the resurrection accounts that we find in the New Testament. Uh, so that's another way in which we can see that the Christian faith is reasonable. And I would never want to imply that that's all there is to it. You know, There's a whole lot of of literature and good talks that you can listen to online uh, on Christian apologetics. But this was, I was speaking at a camp largely consisting of young people who hadn't explored apologetics before. So I closed with this one, session four, because it was written to prepare people for disappointment. Because sometimes when you first discover uh, apologetics, you realize there are these really good reasons that I can give people for believing in God, and you rush out there and you want to share them with people, and you realize, wait a minute, it's not working. <laughs> people aren't just falling over uh, and believing. And not only that, but Christianity's got some really harsh critics out there who are, are downright vitriolic in the way that they sneer and ridicule and, and reject what we believe. And so people need to be prepared for that. 
And so that's what this session was about. It's called, Why Don't More People Believe the Spiritual Battleground of Apologetics? And so without any further ado, let's rush headlong into that now. Now, if I'm right, and if a whole lot of other people are right as well, so if we are right, then faith in God, that is belief that God is real and trust that God makes a difference through Christ, that faith is reasonable. There are good reasons to believe. I've looked in, in that tour, not all of which is in the podcast in the last couple of episodes, but I've looked at just a couple in the last two talks, the way that God makes sense of the moral facts that we encounter and the historical facts surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And there are other arguments too, the so-called cosmological argument, that is the argument from the origin and the existence of the universe, uh, the fine-tuning argument, the argument that the very precise fine-tuning of the universe to support intelligent life is best explained by a designer. And there are others. And yet, not only do so many people not believe, but there are people who vocally, vehemently, and at times venomously and obnoxiously disbelieve, in spite of the very good reasons intelligently explained by many people, there are those whose reaction to the Christian faith is not simply non-belief, but open ridicule and sneering. Now is that really what we should expect? Should people not respond to a reasonable case by taking it seriously, and in many cases accepting it? Or perhaps the case for our faith is much weaker than we thought, or is something else going on, or all of the above. So let's look at the kind of reasons that are going on here for why people respond to belief, or rather to reasons for belief, in the way that they do. The first category we'll look at is the category of rational reasons. Now what we're most often told by people who explicitly reject the Christian faith is that they are rejecting it for intelligent, considered, rational reasons. They see, so they say, that the arguments for the Christian faith are flawed and they have rational reasons of their own for whatever it is they believe. Without a doubt, the single most common objection that you hear is that if our God existed, then he would do things differently. Which is really another way of saying, if I were God, and I knew everything, and I was perfectly good and all-powerful and wise and so on, I would do things differently. Now, there's one rather tempting reply to this, and that's just to ask, how exactly do you know what an all-knowing and perfectly wise person would do without supposing that you're already all-knowing and, and perfectly wise? I mean, how do you have those facts at your disposal without already being in that position? But I'll ignore that just for now. The way that critics typically suppose that they would do things differently if they were God is that they wouldn't allow evil or suffering to occur, or perhaps just not as much evil or suffering as we have in the world, and they wouldn't make themselves as hidden as God allegedly does. They would make their existence more obvious, giving more evidence so that more people would believe. Now these two issues are... are Firstly, the problem of evil, or the problem of suffering, firstly. And secondly, the problem of divine hiddenness. These are the ways in which 
our God, if he existed, uh, is alleged to have not done very well, which suggests that perhaps our, or probably our God doesn't exist. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking to unpacking these arguments or explaining the responses to them, because my main purpose in this talk is to explain that most of the reasons that people don't believe are not rational reasons at all. So very briefly, I'll just observe that there's a lot of very stimulating reading on the problem of evil and divine hiddenness, where a number of theodicies, that is, defenses of God, have been offered. Among those defenses, these theodicies, are the following. Firstly, the free will defense. In order for it to be possible for anyone to really love God in a way that matters, people need to have free will. But if they have free will, then some of them will freely choose to do evil. However, so the theodicy goes, the value of having people freely know and love God is greater than the negative value, the downside, of the fact that there are people who do evil and the evil that they do. Number two, the soul-building defense. Have you ever heard the expression, whatever does not kill us only makes us stronger? Well, that's the soul-building approach. The idea here is that by undergoing suffering, our character is strengthened. And so it, it proves our mettle. It enables us to develop personally and corporately, perhaps. So that's the soul-building defense. There is a, a sense in which this suffering is good for at least some of us. Thirdly, the second-order goods defense, which is similar to the soul-building defense. There are certain kinds of evil that must exist if some great goods can exist. For example, compassion for others can only exist if there is a certain amount of unhappiness in the world. Who are we going to have compassion on? Um, and so the existence of at least some of the evil and suffering in the world enables human beings to develop moral character. Now, let me be clear. In, in listing these theodicies, I'm not necessarily saying I throw my lot in with this. I mean, there are, there are obvious criticisms to be made there. Uh, the second-order good defense to some people will sound a bit like saying that we should rejoice over the existence of broken legs because it provides us with the opportunity to fix them. Number four, the appeal to mystery. Why on earth should any of us think that we can know everything that God knows? And isn't it supremely arrogant to think that we are capable of assessing situations in the way that a perfectly wise and good person would assess them? Because that is just to assume that we are able right now to think like a perfectly good and wise and all-knowing person, when quite clearly we cannot. That is ridiculous. So we have to accept that we are not in a position to know why God allows or does the things that God does. Now, some people might say, oh, that's just mystery-mongering. That's admitting that you don't have an answer. Well, in a sense, it may be, but it's also pointing out what we should expect to be the case if God is perfectly wise and all-knowing and all-good and has a reason for allowing the evil that he does. Now, in regard to the issue of divine hiddenness, the concern here is that if God is really loving, then God would want as many people as possible to believe in him. Yet, there are a lot of reasonable people who don't believe in him, so God isn't really loving, or else he doesn't exist. Now, I think that's a more interesting argument, but it's also more complex and really deserves a talk 
all of its own, one of which I will perhaps offer one of these days, in answering that we would point out that actually the capacity to doubt is something that God wants people, even his own people, his own followers, to have, and which is genuinely good for us. We would also look at the answer offered by Blaise Pascal, who said, and I quote, I'll quote in translation because I can't speak French, what can be seen on earth indicates neither the total absence nor the manifest presence of divinity, but the presence of a hidden God. Everything bears his stamp. So, in other words, what we actually see is evidence of a God who exists, but who also wants us to seek him. The evidence that exists is not so overpowering that people don't even have to think about it. But it is clear enough that everyone who seeks genuinely with an open mind, earnestly, for God, will find him. Now all of these arguments are worth knowing about, worth reading up on, and worth understanding so that you can discuss them with those who raise them. But in spite of the existence of these arguments, I'm going to put it to you that actually if you rank the real reasons that the vocal critics of the Christian faith don't accept the reasons for believing from the most influential to the least influential, quote-unquote intellectual reasons will rank way down the bottom of the list. And the rest of this presentation is about what I think are the more fundamental reasons why critics reject faith in God. And notice, I am talking about critics, about people who actually do uh, attack and sneer and ridicule and so on, and, and you know, ostensibly reject the Christian faith. I'm constantly impressed, as it, as it turns out, by the fact of how open-minded a lot of people are when they didn't set out to be critics, if they're just curious. Uh, and, and I do wonder sometimes, as Christians who are interested in apologetics, how many opportunities we might actually miss because we're so concerned that people will be hostile to what we have to say when we haven't even tried. Uh, so I am talking about critics here. So the first category, or well, the second category now, I suppose, is psychological reasons. We like to think of ourselves as rational creatures. The ancient philosophers of Greece described the human being as the rational animal. Especially if you're a man, you may not like to think of your intellect as governed by emotion, but it is. Now this is the point at a presentation where I would show everybody a picture of a brain with a small part of it highlighted in red, and I would say, who knows what that thing is? Well, you can't see, so it's not fair of me to expect you to answer. It's the amygdala. A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-A. -A -A. Look it up if you're interested. The amygdala. Now, what does it do? What does the amygdala do? Well, we need this thing. It helps to keep us alive. But we also have to be aware of the way that it, it affects our behavior. I'll quote from somebody who knows a little bit more about such things than me, Suzette Hayden-Algen. I think that's how it's pronounced. I'm sorry, Suzette, if it's not. Uh, she explains, and I quote, one of the parts of your brain, the amygdala, is on constant duty, and one of its primary tasks is to scan for danger. When it spots an incoming perception that meets its criteria for danger, it has the ability to send a message that provokes an immediate fight-or-flight reaction. And it can do that without first going through the reasoning part of your brain. It can literally short-circuit your thinking process. In the saber-toothed tiger days, this was a good thing. 
you saw something vaguely big and furry and you either left the scene fast or threw your club. You acted first. Then you thought about it, which increased your odds of survival a good deal. You can see what she's saying there. The amygdala sent you into reaction mode before you'd even stopped to think about it, which was a good thing because if you if you stopped to wonder what you know, what species of animal this was or, or, I don't know, some other thing like that, you, you would probably be dead before you had the chance to, to respond appropriately. So it's a good thing. We need it. The problem is the amygdala also kicks in when it perceives all kinds of other threats, including someone who has just lobbed an argument at you to say that your whole worldview is false and you're going to hell. And so, without even rationally processing the argument you've just given, the response to you that you're about to receive is immediately determined, before the thoughts have even been digested, that response is to fight off the threat, as though it were like a physical threat. It's the same chemical reaction. And what we say and do, on a rational level at least, is a response hugely out of proportion to the situation we're dealing with. Now, sure, if you're running away from a dangerous predator, then you know, a giant overreaction is a good thing. The faster you go, the more aggressive you can be, the better. But when you go into defense and attack mode, when you're reacting to a challenge to your beliefs, you may want to slow down a little bit. It's what's been dubbed the amygdala hijack. Like this little tiny organ hijacks your entire brain and body. At the time somebody's fighting off the threat, if you stop them and you ask them why they're doing it and they stop to give an answer, they may well tell you it's because I'm rational and I'm responding to nonsense in the way that nonsense deserves to be responded to. So, in response to a pretty modest argument for God's existence, you'll get what is almost an angry rant, a tirade about how religion poisons everything, the clergy abuse children and you worship a magic fairy and a zombie who rose from the dead. Or if the person reacting is a Christian whose doctrine has just been challenged, yes we do it too, and if they're firing back a comment on social media to tell the other person how desperate or heretical their comments sound, they might tell you instinctively if you ask them what they're doing, well, it's because I stand for God and his word, and I'm responding to serious error. You know, we flatter ourselves, we flatter ourselves so much into thinking that we would never respond on gut, instinctively, non-rationally. No, we think about what we say, and we weigh what we've heard. Well, maybe sometimes. That's self-control, and it doesn't come naturally. We have to practice that. But when we perceive a threat, our amygdala notices before we even notice that it notices. And the reaction is just like a response to a physical threat. We fight back or we try to escape. And I have seen this play out so many times. I won't name names, although admittedly the example I'm going to use is, is reasonably famous in Christian circles, so you may know what I'm talking about. But there is an evangelist who has a ministry you can read about it online in books, uh, especially online video clips, and one of the tactics that this evangelist uses is he'll stand out on the street, busy street, I think it's California, where there are a whole lot of people, a busy time of day, and he'll single somebody out, he'll point at them and say, you sir, with the red hat, yes you, listen to me, have you ever told a lie? Yes, what does that make you? You're a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Yes, what does that make you? You're a thief. 
and so on and so on. You know, impure thoughts amount to adultery and and hating people amounts to murder and so on. And in the end, he says, right, so by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, adulterous, murderer, blasphemer, so on and so forth. Where do you think you would go if you died right now? That's right, you'd go to hell. So you're a sinner who's on their way to hell. What do you think about that? You probably know who I'm talking about. What does any sensible person really think is going to happen in a situation like that? Oh, good point. You've got me thinking. No. If you encounter someone with very well-developed self-control who was expecting this to happen, maybe they will hear you if you do that. Maybe. Huge maybe. But that is not the way that I see people reacting. They scream in response and become angry. You've attacked me. Now I've got to fight back. Where are your arguments? Which, by the way, I haven't even heard yet. I'm going to tear them apart. (laughs) You've created a battle. We've got to be careful. In addition to understanding how to set forth the reasonableness of what we believe in a way that is articulate and intelligent, we need what has been called emotional intelligence. Now, this is where we've got a good understanding, not just of the ideas that we want to convey, but we've got a good awareness of how our feelings are affecting what we're doing, how what we say and do is likely to affect the feelings of others. It does no good if we approach a real opportunity to engage in apologetics as though it were a fight, the other person responds by telling us correctly that we're a jerk uh, because we totally misjudged how to address them. And then we make things worse by saying, ah, they're just sinners and they can't handle the truth and they can't handle my great arguments. So they're getting angry. Of course they're getting angry. What do you expect them to do? Which of course is just going to make them angry. And really the whole mess was your fault or my fault because we invested all our mental and emotional energy into winning the argument on paper or on the street and not coming alongside the person and actually trying to help them see that what we believe has value. Incidentally, the internet is perhaps the best place to find out how little emotional intelligence you have. Get into an argument with other Christians about theology and you'll see what I mean. Now, I don't want to say that bad reactions must be your fault. Of course they're not. Not always, anyway. You can't control how other people react. That isn't something you can do. But we need to be very aware of the fact that the way people respond isn't always going to be driven by rational or intellectual forces, and we have to ensure that as best we can, we don't provide the opportunity for someone to react in defense or attack mode. Now, maybe they will anyway. You can't ultimately help that. But remember St. Peter's comment, which I quoted in a recent episode, about always being ready to give a defense of the faith that is in you to anyone who asks. And then he adds, as though he knows exactly how we could screw this up, almost as a warning, he says, and I quote, but do it with gentleness and respect. You may want to win the argument. Far be it from me to say that's not a worthy goal. But even more than that, you want to win the person. Jesus called his disciples and said that he was going to make them fishers of men, you know, not baiters of, of other people. So that's the second category of reason that people will naturally have to rejecting what we have to say to them and something that we have to be ready for and very wise and careful about. The next category is moral reasons. Now here is where I start to say some things that are a bit more offensive. And not for the sake of being offensive, 
I mean, I think it represents a biblical view of reality, and I think there's enough plausible evidence in the world around us that it's true. But we've again, we've got to be wise how we say this. In the Bible, in the Old Testament as well as the New, the rejection or the denial of God's sovereignty or goodness or worthiness of worship is always associated not with intellectual slowness or stupidity, but with immorality, with wrongdoing. Listen to what the psalmist said in, in Psalm 14, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. You see the immediate leap there from the rejection of God to the embracing of evil. Ephesians chapter 4. St. Paul has some things to say along a similar line. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through to 19 says this. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So again, there's a very close connection drawn between unbelief, ignorance of God, not knowing God, and sinfulness, immorality. Now you might be thinking, that kind of sounds like propaganda. People who aren't believers are bad and you don't want to be bad, so you should be a believer. It's not really the point. I'm bad too. <laughs> On a bad day, I'm really bad. Remember the data from session one in this series of talks. The rate of giving up faith increased for those who cohabit, drink heavily, etc. Did I mention that in the podcast? I talked about the link with education. And in case I didn't mention it, yeah, the rate of giving up Christian faith or religious faith and altogether was linked with the rate of, of cohabitation sexually, and drinking heavily, living the party life, doing drugs, and so on. The fact is, human beings have a tendency to rationalize. We'll find ourselves justifying, defending, and eventually just liking the outlook on life in terms of metaphysics, religion, and so on. That suits the way that we wish to live. And this can override the fact that there may or may not be good intellectual reasons to accept or reject the view in question. You find yourself wanting to live a certain way, all of a sudden you start thinking, oh, maybe this Christian faith isn't true. Yeah, maybe maybe these, these arguments that people have been using against it, maybe they're quite good. Wouldn't that be convenient? The eminent 20th century historian Paul Johnson, in his book Intellectuals, provided what he called, and I quote, an examination of the moral and judgmental credentials of leading intellectuals to give advice to humanity on how to conduct its affairs. He noted that leading intellectuals of the modern world on the forefront of cultural and moral revolution are often people whose own lives betrayed the desire to live as though the moralism against which they rail is false. Bertrand Russell is known for a number of reasons, one of which is that he was both a philosophical critic of the Christian faith and another is that he denied the existence of objective moral duties. And so when writing on marriage and morals, he was open in saying that adultery isn't wrong, for nothing really is, and people should just grow up and accept that it's normal for married men to spread their affection. 
as long as they're not raising multiple families and making life hard for people. Russell himself had numerous extramarital affairs, a fact he was very open about, and what he was basically arguing for was that people should approve of those who live as he did. Now, if you think that this is an unfair way of trying to get behind people's motives or that I am just trying to rationalize people's expressed point of view and ignore it by attacking their character, have a listen to another example. This time, the atheist writer Aldous Huxley. Christians are sometimes, I think, incorrectly accused of taking Huxley out of context about this. So here he is in his own words from his book Ends and Means, and you can hear quite clearly what the whole paragraph is saying. He is discussing his own philosophy that there is no ultimate meaning to existence. And I quote, For myself, as no doubt for many of, or for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We objected to the political and economic system because it was unjust. The supporters of these systems claimed that in some way they embodied the meaning, a Christian meaning they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confusing these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotical revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. End quote. And again, very candidly admitting what's going on beneath the surface of his thinking, I quote again, most ignorance is vincible ignorance. Vincible just means the opposite of invincible. It could be defeated. So I'll say that again. Most ignorance is vincible ignorance. We don't know because we don't want to know. It is our will that decides how and upon what subjects we shall use our intelligence. Those who detect no meaning in the world generally do so because for one reason or another, it suits their books that the world should be meaningless. End quote. I think that's breathtakingly honest and revealing. Denying that there is a moral lawgiver or a moral law is precisely what you would want to do if you didn't want to be bound by those supposed laws. In a provocative but relatively short and for what it's worth enjoyable and readable book, The Making of an Atheist, Professor James Spiegel, James Spiegel, I hope I say your last name right, James, looks at the issue from a historical, philosophical and biblical perspective. He draws together some pretty stirring observations from scholars in a number of fields. Paul Johnson, as already noted, psychologist Paul Witz, who notes a striking connection between leading intellectuals who attack faith in God, leading intellectuals who defend faith in God, and either the absence of a father figure or a dysfunctional relationship with their father in the case of those who attack faith in God, and a healthy father relationship among those who embrace faith. Not a universal pattern, but definitely a clear trend. So much for Sigmund Freud's claim that those who turn to God do so because they lack a loving earthly father, so they invent a loving heavenly father. It's the other way around. People who uh, have a broken relationship with their father or none at all project that brokenness or absence onto the cosmos. Now, he looked at examples where anthropologists 
have seriously misrepresented the moral and sexual practices of cultures that people in their Western context knew little about, making them sound promiscuous and nonchalant about sexuality, only for it to be discovered that not only was the representation totally untrue, a striking example was the way that Samoa was represented by Margaret Mead, but that the fictional version of that culture coincidentally aligned nicely with the moral outlook of the anthropologist in question. In other words, they basically invent this promiscuous society, which is really their ideal society in terms of sexuality. And and they try and tell people, hey, the world out there is just like this. Uh, Margaret Mead was a classic example of this, uh, portraying the peoples of Samoa as rampantly uh, promiscuous with no interest in monogamy whatsoever. Now, in this case, Uh, somebody who was herself very promiscuous outside of her own marriage with her lesbian partner. What Dr. Spiegel proposed is that it is not intellectual reasoning that most strongly drives a person to reject God and to rewrite the moral landscape as not laying any obligations on them that they find oppressive and don't want to live up to. It is instead what Christians and other people regularly refer to with one short word, sin. It's becoming a bit of a trend in some academic circles to talk about a cognitive science of religion. That is, to use the behavioral sciences to explain why people embrace religion. I mean, of course, it couldn't be because religion has any intellectual credibility. What nonsense. We scholars know better than that. Let's just unpack the the cultural and sociological reasons that drive people to embrace these irrational beliefs. Well, that method comes back to bite the critics of religion, because what we may actually be seeing when we turn the tables and ask similar questions of strong atheism is that there are very strong non-intellectual causes of unbelief. And one of them, rather uncomfortably, may be that people quite frankly love what God regards as sin. And if embracing God means giving up the sin that we love, then let us arm ourselves to the teeth and do battle with belief in God. Now, please understand that when I do this, and when others do this, and hopefully when you do this, when you talk about this, this is not, or it, it must not, it should not be a case of sneering at atheists or people who give up faith in God or trying to look down on them. As I look around in my own life at people I know who have made the conscious decision to abandon Christianity, I do not see people who started discovering more and more good intellectual reasons, one after the other, to think that the Christian faith was untrue until finally they gave in to reason. What I see is really tragic and painful. People who face some sort of moral crisis, they wanted to pursue a life that they knew was contrary to what God was calling them to to give up a marriage, to have an affair, to indulge the party life, and so on. You may know people that this has happened to as well. The point here is not that everyone who doesn't accept your reasons for believing is like this, or is deliberately ignoring you because they consciously desire or choose to rush off and do evil. That's generally not the case. The point is that this moral drive is one among several powerful reasons that people do not accept what you have to say and turn against them strongly. 
even though what you say in defense of the truth of Christianity may be perfectly reasonable. That brings us to the last reason, spiritual reasons. And look, to be honest, I, mean, I, I consider myself a theologian. I've got a couple of theology degrees. But it's, it's not easy to pin down exactly what I mean or what other people mean, I think, when we say that something is a spiritual issue. Are we saying that it's an issue that primarily affects an invisible part of us called our spirit? That's not what I mean. I don't think that's, that's what the Bible is doing when it uses the word spiritual. Does it mean religious or perhaps mysterious? It's not all that clear. But let me make, make the attempt to say what I think it means. To say that we have a spiritual problem is to say that something is wrong with our relationship with God. And the truth is, it's impossible to separate spiritual issues from psychological and moral issues because all of those aspects of our being are part of our relationship with God. So they are spiritual. The habits of thinking that we get into, whether we're open to God, and whether we place the satisfaction of our own desires above our love of God, these are psychological, they're moral, and they're clearly spiritual. Let me go back to St. Paul here. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. I quoted this a couple of episodes ago, but it's relevant here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The spiritual problem runs through all of this. The spiritual problem is why we desire to live our lives without reference to God above us. The spiritual problem, that hardness of heart towards God, is what makes some of us react against the presentation or defense of the truth about Christ as though we are being attacked. And ultimately, so much of the time, among those who rail against their Creator, the spiritual problem, that alienation from God and that broken relationship with Him, is the driver behind our confidence that we have outsmarted Him with our arguments. Never, never fall into the trap of thinking that putting together a really good argument is going to win people to Christ. That's false. My experience is that the better an argument and its clear, polished presentation, sometimes the more anger and the stronger the reaction you're likely to see. Now, if I was a bit more of a spiritual person, I'd be tempted to say that that makes the enemy even more anxious and angry, because that's more of a threat. That, in my experience, is what you'll see. That's when you will see, more clearly than ever, how much some people don't want what we are saying to be true. The strong reaction to a clear presentation. So what do you do? I mean, how can you prepare your case, your presentation, your arguments, how can you prepare for what you can be almost certain is a largely non-rational response of hostility? 
How can you prepare for that? How can you predict what's going to happen? Well, and this is what I told my audience, uh, because this was this is one of those things I said is more relevant in a live context. You do what I did before you came here to give these talks, and what I know a number of my friends are doing for me right now. You pray. You know, it, it's almost, it's, it's, I would say it's, it's shameful that I haven't even mentioned it so far, but I deliberately didn't mention it so far because I was saving it for now. You pray. You've got to pray. I mean, we're Christians. This is what we do, right? Birds fly. Fish swim. Christians pray. You pray as I did, and I still do, for my own inadequacy. Saying a word wrong, forgetting a point, coming across too harsh, misunderstanding what the other person is saying. Look, it happens. We're human beings. You have to pray for yourself in that regard. You have to pray for your attitude. You know, you don't want to come across as arrogant. In fact, you don't want to, you don't want to be arrogant. You don't want to just be arrogant and veil that arrogance. You just you don't want to be arrogant. <laughs> you don't want to be arrogant. These you have to have a love for lost children of God. If your intention genuinely is to win them over, you have to have a love for them. Pray for the other person. You don't know what God has in store or what God will do. That's up to God. But pray that God will prepare their heart for what it is you have to say. And continue praying for them as you part ways. Pray that God will bring people across their path and circumstances to their life that will prompt them and remind them of what you've said. The good stuff, anyway. (laughs) Intellectual Christians, and I'm moving away from the subject of prayer just briefly here, intellectual Christians often don't like to talk about the devil. He's sort of an embarrassing character who we'd sooner avoid, as though there's no such thing. You know, you're enthusiastic in in believing and talking about the devil, then you go away to Bible college and seminary and you get your master's degree and your PhD, and then you don't talk about the devil. That's a kind of superstition. But look, it's part of Christian theology. It's part of what Scripture teaches. I don't profess to be an expert on the devil. I tend to leave that up to the people who run this country. But the Bible tells us that there are things going on that we can't see. And there are spiritual forces at work that are very real. The book of James, for example, tells us that the devil is a bit like a predatory lion looking for someone to eat. James also says, also tells us what we should do about that. Resist the devil by drawing near to God, and God will draw near to you. That brings me back to what I was saying a second ago. You need to pray. We should be praying anyway, but especially if you're going to go and speak directly to unbelievers about their unbelief. I'm going to assume that you've heard of Charles Spurgeon, and this is the point where I would ask people to raise their hands if they know the answer, uh, except in, in very conservative churches that tap their feet or something, you know, raise hands. Uh, I would say, have you ever heard of, of Charles Spurgeon's boiler room? And some would say yes. Often people would say no. I like it when they say no so I can feel clever being the one to explain it to them. Five young college students were spending a Sunday in London, so they went to hear the famed C.H. Spurgeon preach. And while they were waiting for the doors of the church to open, they were greeted by a man who said, Gentlemen, let me show you around. Would you like to see the heating plant of this church? Well, there's a riveting offer. They were not particularly interested, for it was a hot day in July. But they didn't want to offend the stranger, so they consented. The young men were taken down a stairway. A door was quietly opened, and their guide whispered, This is our heating plant. Surprised, 
the students saw 700 people bowed in prayer, seeking a blessing on the service that was soon to begin in the auditorium above. Softly closing the door, the gentleman then introduced himself. It was none other than Charles Spurgeon. Wasn't that interesting? I sometimes look back on the work of Spurgeon. All his, well, I don't know all of them, but a whole lot of his sermons were published, voluminous, you know, filling up bookshelves. And I sometimes look back over his, his sermons with a critical eye. Some of them I think were rubbish. I'm sorry. A couple of them were just bad theology. A couple of them, they're okay. Yeah, I wouldn't have said it like that. Some of them were really good too, don't get me wrong. But the point is, the success of his ministry was not due to the skill or brilliance of Charles Spurgeon. That's not what it was about, and he knew it. 700 people were there praying for him. Yeah, he wasn't supremely confident that because of his oratory skills, he would win people over. He knew that this was ultimately a spiritual issue. His success was not due to himself. And your success will not be due to you either. You have to pray. So, in summary, if there are good reasons to embrace God, and Christ in particular, then why do we have the critics that we do? Rational reasons? Yeah, maybe in some cases. Psychological reasons, yes, definitely. Like it or not, non-rational forces are at work in all of us. So we've got to be wise in our approach and we've got to understand the way that these factors affect both us and the people that we're going to be talking to. We need emotional intelligence. We need social skills. We need wisdom and prudence in the way that we do this. Moral reasons. The truth is we don't want a God who has better ideas. We know what we want to do. We know how we want to live. And we don't want that which gets in our way. And lastly, spiritual reasons. We are in enmity with God. And we need revival. We need personal transformation. And we need to spend much time in prayer about presenting the truth of the Christian faith. And that draws that presentation to a close. Well, what's on the agenda for next time? The big 5-0, Well, while I was on this, this speaking tour, I like to keep saying speaking tour. It makes me sound important. Um, while I was speaking, in addition to giving that series on apologetics, I gave another talk to a gathering arranged by an organization called Thinking Matters. And they said, how about you, you answer this question? So what? I mean, why does any of this matter? You know, there are lots of, of, of arguments that we might give in terms of apologetics, giving reasons for why we should believe the Christian faith in terms of what makes us justified in accepting it. But there's another kind of why going on here as well. Why should we care? You know, even if Christianity is true, why should we believe it? What difference does it make? And so I gave a talk on what difference it makes whether or not Christianity is true which seems to me to be a pretty important topic. So maybe that's a good way to mark the 50th, I was going to say anniversary, but it's not an anniversary, maybe a potiversary. And so that's what I'll be talking about uh, next time I do one of these. But for now, I think I'll just sign off. This was episode 49. I am your host, Glenn Peoples, and you have been listening to... Say hello to my little friend!